Have a seat, Terranova. This morning we're going to go back into the facts series. So if you need a Bible today, put your hand up and someone will bring you one. And you'll be able to follow along as we look at several texts. But before we head into the fact on dating and marriage and divorce, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment to address fatherhood and in that childhood. It, it is a hard task to be called to be a father. It's hard because we're sinful men. Our own selfishness, our own wrongs will, will bring us to places that we never thought we would be in behaving as a dad. And, and we'll find a, a, a division at times among our children. Childhood is hard. We, we have our own sinfulness, and it's hard for us to, to honor and follow all the time what, what a father would say. But John prophesied this about Jesus' desire and ministry and that he would be successful in doing this. He would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children's back to the father, which tells us what we need to admit going in. There's something dysfunctional in our families. There's something in dad's life, whether it's a, a fear of commitment, a selfishness, an injury, that has turned his heart at times away from children. And there's something sinful in the childhood life, all of us, and we never really outgrow that, that turned us away from the hearts of our, of our parents, and our hearts turned away from them. I want to encourage both the dads and those who have had dads. We have to turn to Jesus. We have to get to that place where in finding security in Him, where our identity is firmly placed on who I am in Jesus, that I can then turn my heart to other people and risk. I can forgive. I can reach out. And I want to encourage you this Father's Day, where there are places that you need to speak as a dad into your kid's life in a, in a loving and good way, uh, you don't have to just say directly, here's where I've messed up, but you can begin to say, here's the dad that I want to be so your kids know who you want to be for them. And, and for you who have dad issues, and I think that's going to be pretty much everyone in the room on some level, I would take Father's Day to deal with some of that. If your dad's passed, it may just be in prayer with the Lord. to Say, here's what happened in my life. Here's how I responded that was sinful. And I'd like forgiveness for that. It may mean a phone call or time today to talk to dad. But what I'd like to do now is just pray for the fathers in the room, and then we'll jump into the sermon time. Lord God, our Father in heaven, we bless your name. And Lord, we pray for those of us who are called dad and father, who are trying to follow after you, and you recognize in that name that we call you such a high calling of direction and provision and protection. God, we pray that you would bless the families here, that you would teach us how to live out godliness in the homes, especially for dads who are leading and shepherding wives and children in those homes. And Father, we would just ask that they would have a vision today for Jesus. Help heal old wounds and help give new direction and new life. We know you restore all things, Lord. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. So today we'll look at three related topics. They are big topics. They, they could all be a sermon series unto themselves. Dating, marriage, and divorce. So what's going to happen is I'm going to try to lay a theological cornerstone for it, some biblical insight, along with pastoral application. As always in these facts series, the expectation is not that we're able to get to everything in the time that we have together, but that it'll encourage dialogue and further study on your part. There'll be things that you look up. There'll be conversations that you have because of these things. So here's the roadmap for today. I'm going to read portions of 1 Corinthians 7. You can turn there now if you have that Bible with you. And then we'll talk about dating and what dating is really meant to be about. And I'll recommend a book at the end of each of these sections or two. Uh, we'll talk about marriage and we'll speak about four things biblically that should be represented in marriage. And then we'll speak about divorce what honestly and biblically God says about divorce and remarriage in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 16, and then we're going to jump to verse 25. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man 
not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Picking up in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman married, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her at his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet it is my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, well, your word gives us so much. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes to take in all that it's saying, all the direction, all the advice, all the, all the counsel towards godliness. So God, we pray your help today that, that the presence of your spirit would open hearts. I, I, I'm praying, Lord, especially for those who are hurt or afraid of this topic, that they would be open to what you have to say today for them. And I'm praying, Lord, for those who would think the topic has nothing to do with them because there are only one position and not all three of them, that, that you would show them that there's godly things to be learned in all of these places that we go to today. And so, Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. 
that it could be removed, the idols that we love taken out, and more space be made for Jesus in our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen. So we come to a place where first we want to start with dating. The question of of why date, how to date, who, who do we date? These are important questions, and they really deserve serious attention, because as my father said to me, choose your spouse and your job very carefully. You may have those for a really long time. He he was a guy who wasn't prone to big speeches. He tended to be a quiet guy who thought about things, and when he said those little proverbs, they grabbed me and I thought about them. And I hope you do today as well, especially, I know we have a lot of single people at Terra. It's wonderful to see the, 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 the young folks that we have here and the energy that's there. And I hear so many times the desire of, man, I just don't know who God wants me to marry. I just, I just want to start dating. I want to find the right person. And I know it's a really big concern for so many here. So, so let me give this perspective first. Three things about dating that I'd like us to get to today. First, get priorities right. God is the priority. Not God is the the matchmaker only, and I'm waiting for him to give me what I really need and what I really want. Boy, the passage we read today again and again said that real clearly. It's okay not to be married. It's okay to be married. Just make sure you're in the Lord. This, This is the most important piece. And sometimes when we're single and desiring so much not to be single that we can miss the priority is God not having someone to date. Because if that becomes the priority, you will make the mistake. You won't be looking at God. You won't see godliness. You'll just start dating someone because it fulfills what you think is a need. And you begin to put on dating a a weight it was never meant to have, a place it was never meant to have, a place that God alone was meant to have. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In a passage about food and clothing, the very sustenance of a society that that didn't have a whole lot, where where death and starvation were real things, where where sickness and exposure were real possibilities, Jesus says, "Don't, don't be anxious about those things. Your first priority, seek the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. The first priority in anything that we're doing, whether it's considering dating, whether it's food or clothing, the first priority that will keep us away from idols and close to God is to seek his kingdom, which simply means what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, the things that you want, the things that you've spoken, the order that you've created, when heaven and earth were meant to be in harmony, I want those things. I want to live those out. I want to show your lordship. I want to honor you. And all that I'm doing, I'm saying, you are my Lord. When I violate those boundaries, I go to you and say, I need to confess my sin because I have not lived with your kingdom first. I've lived with my desires first. And seeking his righteousness Be holy as I am holy. That's a lifetime passage. To seek first to know the holiness of God, to even recognize it from our sinful eyes where he seems so veiled because our view is so limited. And then as we see more, to begin to live out that holiness. This is a lifetime pursuit and it's the priority. Romans 12, Paul will say it this way. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, thank the Lord for that, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Offering ourselves to God makes us followers. When we say, God, my life is a sacrifice to you, I want my mind, strength, body, soul, I want all those pieces that you speak about to be for you. It's easy to get distracted in the busy work world or in a very thin job market. We can think it's about getting that job or about getting that promotion. But it's still about laying ourselves before God and saying we're following because we are all followers of something. 
I've learned if you, if you ever really want to like disappoint an artist, and I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but when you see their work or hear their work, say, eh, it's derivative. I've learned that that's the, the big insult in the art world. In reality, we as people are, are all derivative. We were created by God in his image and meant to derive direction and lordship and protection and identity from him. We're meant to be followers. In the absence of God being Lord in any moment of our life, we follow something else or someone else. We follow our own passions. Paul warned about that multiple times. Or in this passage, we, we follow ways that seem to be popular around us. Don't be transformed and conform to the world. Be transformed by the renewal. When it comes to dating... It, it, it's treated in this world almost as a rite of passage and a hobby at the same time. You're just supposed to date, and, and you're supposed to keep dating. And for many people, there is a whole series of dating before they ever come to a place of marriage. And they've given away bits of themselves along the road. They, they've become very intimately involved, whether spiritually, emotionally, or sexually, and those parts of their heart are, are pushed aside. And And many people go through a serial dating process where they act like the boundaries of marriage are almost there and they end up unrealizing with a series of of divorce-like traits about them. That they've broken off very hard all these dating situations that they've had. I'm not saying never date, but I am saying make God a priority and once the priority is established... It's easy and logical that dating must have purity. If if God's number one in this position and his nature is holiness, we need to become the kind of followers where holiness is the natural overflow of the disciple, even in a dating relationship. The passage today in 1 Corinthians 7.36, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it's no sin. So the betrothed is, is more like the serious commitment dating at this point. Casual dating wasn't known in the ancient Near East at the time of the Bible. This is a creation of popular American youth culture in the, in the 20th century to go out and date and date and date. It used to be at some point you would, you would see someone that maybe you liked their qualities and characters and the families would talk and, and you'd have time to sit on the front porch or in the living room in a, in a safe, supervised way to get to know each other on some level rather than I'm dating with no end in sight except the next dating. But the betrothed was that serious connection where now you knew enough about the person to say, it looks like we're heading towards that direction of marriage. And and they're not married yet, but there is a commitment, a binding that's happened, and that closeness can often lead to temptation and a a holy anticipation of what's coming in marriage and what sexual union will be like. And Paul plainly says, if you're in that place where you're in a relationship and, and those boundaries are just about to break down, it's really better that you marry than you let your life become about the the conflict and sin of immoral sexuality. So if you're here today and you're in a dating relationship where those boundaries are either really close to giving way or they already have, uh, here's some pastoral advice. If your relationship has become about that, if it just seems like it's about the sexual thing, break up immediately. Your relationship is based on something that relationship shouldn't be on. Maybe you'll be together at some other point, but if that's what you would say our relationship has become about, we get together now not, not to pray, not to, not to go do something, not to know each other's character more, but it's a sexual thing. That, that just needs to end. There's no place for that biblically in the believer's life. For some, the answer will be take a break. It's time to separate from each other so that you can clean those filters out again because it's easy once that habit's established to let everything slide again and again and again. You may need to take a break at this time and just say to the person, look, we agree, we're just going to be apart from each other for a while. And when we get back together... If we get back together, we're going to start with some different ground rules so that's not difficult anymore. For some of you, the answer is marry already. It's time for you to be a man and to say sexuality is a good thing with my wife. A wife means I have to be responsible. I have to commit to this person. I have to provide for this person. I have to get a job and be the man. 
It's time for you to say, you know what? I'm going to stop pretending that my dating sexuality is one, actually satisfying me, actually pleasing God, or actually making me more of a man. And I'm going to come to the point where I should be honest before God. I'm going to repent of those things, and I'm going to let this woman know, I know I really blew it beforehand, and now I'm going to ask you to do something really difficult and trust me to lead even though I've been ungodly. And I'm going to begin this married life together. You're going to need some counsel for that. But for some of you, that will be the answer. It's not just a purity sexually that's needed, but a purity spiritually. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? context, there's, there's some argument of what Paul would have in his mind. The word there on equally yoked is only used in the Greek language in one other place in a translation of the Old Testament into Greek where it talks about animal breeding and what animals you shouldn't be crossbreeding. The only other place it's mentioned has, has a sexual mating context to it. But maybe Paul's thinking about the warnings of, of Deuteronomy 20 for an agrarian society not to yoke, to put together in that binding piece of wood to pull on the plow the ox and the donkey, that it just won't work. They're, they're different animals with different minds and different intents, and if you put them together in that collar, they'll pull differently, they'll want to do things at different speeds, and it just won't work. You can't be in a place where you're dating the unbeliever and thinking, we're going to get married, and it's going to be a happy marriage. Sometimes what you'll do is start to tell yourself rationalizations that the person who really doesn't love Jesus, who really doesn't read their Bible, who really isn't too concerned about sin, is actually a believer because you want to date and marry them so badly. And you'll start to come up with excuses. Well, they did mention God once. I, I, I heard the guy plainly. He hit his foot and he said God's name. And so I know he's a believer. He talks a lot about church. Why he won't go to church with me. So he must be a believer to talk about church that much. Here's what will happen if you end up marrying unequally yoked. You won't have the same basis on any level. The believer is to love the Lord God with all their heart all that's the immaterial being of their soul and their feelings, all their mind, all their intellectual directions, and all their strength, all their bodily work. The the non-believer has different directions on every one of those levels. You will be pulling away from each other the whole time. You will be heartbroken. I've watched as a pastor too many times one spouse sitting out there, half a person, heartbroken every time they're watching families come and go in the church because they decided to marry outside the Lord. There's going to be a huge gap of, of mind, heart, and purpose. The other thing that will break your heart in this is at some point you will realize your union together, even presence together, is now temporary at best. We know in heaven the Bible says there won't be marriage or given in marriage, but I'll see my spouse there. If you marry the non-believer, at some point when you lay your head down at night, you're going to have to be realizing, I don't see them again at some point. Everything that I've invested in ends. You'll also realize that she or he will become the parent to your children. They will be directing and guiding your children in ways that aren't put out by God. As you're trying to do that, and you're putting those kids at risk of what generation you're going to raise, the next generation of Christians or the next generations of idolaters. Our passage today in 1 Corinthians 7 said, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Marriage for a believer is meant to be in the Lord. There needs to be a purity spiritually as well as bodily. There's a purpose for dating. The purpose of dating is important for us to address because it it makes sense of dating. It takes us away from dating as a hobby or a habit and brings us to a course of finding a spouse. Now, that's not an immediate thing. I, I would advise against on the first date saying, how do you think we'd work as a married couple? Chances are there won't be a second date. You'll be the awkward guy, right? You don't want to do that. Take, take your time. Get to know somebody slowly and carefully. Get, get to know their, their character. Because if the purpose of marriage is to find another believer whose priority is the Lord, 
who's living out this purity with you, and then you're going to be together being this foundational unit called the family, it's important to look at their character. One of the passages that I'll always end up going back to when I talk about the character and think about the character of male and female is 1 Timothy 2. Paul writes, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and also this and this. That actually could be taken off at the end of there. It's uh, verse 11. So here's the thing. For guys, the character quality of guys is that they're not angry, out-of-control men. Their hands aren't constantly opposed to something else. They're not white-knuckling life, and they're not fighting someone else. Their hands are lifted up to God in prayer. They're men who are in submission to God. Prayer is part of their lives. See, we are strong-willed and independent. In our sinfulness, what men will want is our identity to be about our accomplishments. And that means either competition or self-judgment, either pride or anger. But the moment the guy starts to say, Lord, I want what you want. He's now in a position with his hands lifted up to God, which universally says, I surrender. I surrender. God... My life is no longer about all the desires that I want that seem to change daily. It's not about the bitterness of what I didn't get. My life is surrendered to you. And I'm just praying for guidance and direction of what you have for me. I'm not quarreling. I'm not, I'm not the guy who's given over to taking the strengths of man and misusing it in a profane way to look like a caricature of what maleness should be. Likewise, the female. She shouldn't be a caricature, taking the most noble pieces of womanhood, beauty, and just saying, now I'm going to use this immodestly, you will attract all the wrong guys. You, you will attract people. If you start thinking, I so don't want to be alone, and, and if I just be a little more modest, I notice guys look at me and talk to me. Yep, you're going to get attention from none of the guys that you want to marry. And, and it's not just about a modesty that's a modesty of, of uh, sensuality, but a, a modesty of showing off how much you can have, too. A lot of times women, their identity won't be about accomplishment. It'll be about relationship with other people. And so the women will have this sinful idea of I'm the queen bee. And I'm going to dress in more expensive stuff and show everyone I'm more successful. And the other women will know I'm meant to be the one who's to be recognized as sort of that queenly person in gold and pearls. Where Paul says it's more proper to be living a godly life with good works. So guys, look for women who are doing the godly good works, the ones who are serving, the ones who are caring, the ones who are sacrificing. Really important godly characters, if you're, characteristics, if you're looking for that in a spouse. Look at those things. Ladies, look at the guys who, who aren't being the angry, macho, stomach guys, and please don't make them your project. It's not your job to fix that guy and just say, I want the worst one so that I can prove to God that I can be a servant to fix the absolute worst guy I can find. Look for the guy of godly character. Reward that guy with your attention. Look for those in your relationships. It's so easy just to be distracted by the temporary things that we would all recognize as, as passing beauty. beauty. Beauty is fleeting and charm is deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Look really carefully at the character of these people. Women, especially for you, one way that you can suss out pretty quickly who this guy is, when he doesn't think you're looking, watch how he treats women in his life. Watch how he treats his sister. Watch how he treats his mom. Watch how he treats other women. If, if he's just ignoring them, if he's not getting that these are gentle handle with care creatures, like Peter says, that they're the gentler, weaker vessel, man, you don't want to be with that person. How do you think he's going to treat you? He'll have a reason if you confront him. Ah, oh, if you understood the relationship I have with my mother, it's complex. Nope. Look, look for the godly guy who's submissive to God, who's able to really care for the women in his life already. He'll make a good husband for you. If you're stuck, you're not sure, do what everyone has done in every other culture for thousands of years. Ask the advice of people wiser than you. Talk to your parents. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your small group. Talk to other friends. What, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about this match? You'll, you'll probably hear some good advice in that process. Because ultimately, dating in this context of priority and purity is meant to lead to marriage. The, the question about marriage that I received is really a practical one. What makes a good marriage? I'm not sure how much I can speak to it personally. I've 
been happily married 20 years, been married 22 years, but happily married for uh, 20 years. So we, we, we have our moments, Diane and I, and uh, th- that's no insult to her. It's probably more a comment on me or just the nature of sinfulness in both of us. But what makes a good marriage, if you want to spend more time on this, I'd refer you to a marriage series preached here at Terra Nova. It was four separate sermons, because what I'm going to go through now is really a, a truncation of those things. First, marriage is God's design. In Genesis chapter 2, it wasn't good for the man to be alone. There's no helper for the man. There's no true companion for the man. And he takes woman out of man, and they, they leave and cleave and become one flesh, is what the Bible says. It's God who created marriage. Marriage is not a social institution that was discovered over time. Marriage is not something that anyone has legitimate right to change or redefine other than God who created it. And and it begins with starting another home. You'll leave your mother and father and then cleave to your spouse. So many times what ruins a potentially happy marriage is people aren't willing to stand both foot in the circle. They leave one foot out. I want to keep a little bit of my old world. I want to be the guy who's still living partly like I'm free and be able to go out, spend money, spend time with my friends, go out to to movies, clubs, drinking, whatever I want to do, and still be the married person. Nope, you you leave one way and you cleave to another. It might be a wife who who acts like, you know, I, I, I tell you you're number one in my life and I'm married to you, but my one foot out is I really still love daddy and mommy a whole lot more than I love the new family, and so I'm really spending my balance in a way that's not showing that I've left fully. Cleaving means that you not only leave, but now you add something. The two become one flesh, and they're meant to stay that way. One flesh put together should probably remain together. Uh, When I was in school, some guys played a practical joke on someone, and I, I was not involved. I want that on the record clearly right now. Um, where they told this guy that the substance they put on his hands would really heat up if he rubbed it together. They put it on his hand, he went to rub it together, and his hands froze together because it was crazy glue. Yeah, that's not funny at all, right? That's just mean. Um, and as he stood there with his hands stuck together, he realized he couldn't get them apart. Uh, eventually, they got him apart, and he had bits that were red and torn on one hand and stuck to the other one. That's the picture of what happens if, if you cleave with the intent or, or even non-intentionally pulling it apart. It's not going to be easy. If you're married and you want to show that you've cleaved, have the talk with your spouse to say, we agree that there's no divorce here, right? What that's going to do, it's going to give you freedom to argue well. Diane and I have had that discussion from early on in our marriage. We don't believe in divorce. We might believe in anger with each other, we might believe in being in separate rooms. We, we might believe even at times of being apart from each other for a day or two because we're trying to work some things out and it's just toxic at the moment. We, we might be people who believe in getting counsel. All the wisest people I've known who are married at some point in their life have had counselors speaking into their marriage. It may be the counsel of older, wiser people. maybe the counsel of a pastor. It may be a professional counselor. No shame in that, a lot of wisdom in that. When Diane and I felt a lot of pressure in our life, we recognized that when you start to conflate that bandwidth down, all the things get more difficult. And we said, look, things are okay right now, but potentially this is a tough time. Let's go get some marital counseling on just reassuring us. How, how do we argue? How do we plan things out? And working things out. As seasons of marriage change, and it gets difficult to navigate new waters. You don't just figure it out. It changes from decade to decade, sometimes year to year. There may be a need for counsel. If we're going to say we don't believe in divorce, we have to believe in cleaving better and better. Just as a practical piece of wisdom on cleaving, I think we emotionally cleave too, just to that man or to that woman. So Diane and I made a covenant that we don't have any friends, confidants of the opposite gender. We don't have the the guy that she gets together for lunch with or the the girl that I just call to talk through my problems. We, We just don't do that. I maybe can't find a verse for it, but... Here's how it, I would put it, and this is you know, probably the poetic side of me who studied literature and thought about these things, but I would say it's stupid. That's the word that I would use to describe if you're married and you decide, I'm going to have this really close relationship with some of the opposite sex. You're just aggressively stupid. There's a calling that Paul links to creation. Flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 talks about the roles of a husband and wife in marriage. 
Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember the one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's repeated again and again. Each has a calling. It has to do with our nature and the way we're designed. We all need love and respect. But for a guy, it's the primary language that he needs to hear from his wife, to be recognized as, I respect the way that you're working through things. I respect the way that you take care of me. I respect the things you do. It's a calling, guys, to do your best to live up to it. And there's a calling for the men to love their wives. This is the way you live up to it, that you live sacrificially loving them. Because for a woman, it's not about, did you respect what I did as much as, do you love me? It's not about how much did we accomplish, but how much did you care? All people need love and respect. Men and women need it in different proportions. And the calling is for each one of you. It doesn't say, wives, when your husband's being really great, respect him. It says, wives, respect your husband. You can find something. He's in the image of God. Just f- if he picks up his socks and that's the best you can do on that day, yeah, it's really good that you fought gravity with the whole sock war and got them off the floor. Love you. Husbands, your call is to love your wives, even if she's not living in a way that's respectful to you at that time. You're each called by God, empowered by his spirit to accomplish this task. We'll use the excuse of getting our eyes off of God instead of hearing his calling and saying, this person doesn't deserve my love, this person doesn't deserve my respect. But if in marriage like dating we have the priority right, I'm still looking at God for my cues and direction, we hear the call and say, okay, I need to live out a life of love towards this person that's sacrificial and presents her as better off, more holy, that when she looks at being with me, she says, wow, this guy sacrificed and built me up. You need to be the kind of woman who's finding respect for your husband in that marriage relationship. Thirdly, marriage must have love to have any meaning whatsoever. Obligation just isn't enough. Being consistent just isn't enough. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. It has to be the motivator for all that we're doing to have that gift mean anything. It goes on to describe love as patient and kind, does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There are multiple kinds of love, and we're called to all of them in marriage. There's the eros love of sensuality, and it's not just sexuality. It can be a passion for something that you share with your spouse. There's the philos love of friendship, that face-to-face in life, you're, you're able to go through this journey together. There's the storge love of affection, where you just recognize, I, this person has grown on me. Even the quirks that aren't the most lovable things, I really have an affection for those things. But this love is the love that God gives to people. It's called agape. It's a sacrificial, unconditional love sourced in him. And as you receive it, you're able to give it out. It's a one-way flow. You don't even need to get it back. This is the amazing thing about the love of God. You don't need to get back human love to be able to provide people with the love that God gives you. And the well never runs dry if you're getting it from him. Fourthly, marriage is about ministry. When you become married to a person, you're placed in a unique pastoral position. You see them and know them better than anybody. Other people see our most careful face. We're living resumes most of the time. We're, we're just putting out what we want people to see, trying to control the way they think about us. You can't do that when you're living with someone constantly. They're going to know when you're unraveling. They're going to know your sinfulness. They're going to know your anger. They're going to know all your faults in just a very short time. And the goal becomes for you to become a pastoral, a caring, a disciple-making influence in that person's life because you're the person who gets to see that. 
bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not even a verse that seems directly about marriage until you realize the family is really the first church. And every one another that you read about in the Bible of how the church should treat each other, you need to import first to your marriage. Bearing one another's burdens, all the things that we come in with, all the baggage we carry, it now becomes my joyful duty to say, Diane Livesey Marcel's burdens, the things where she's been injured by people, the lies that she believed, the things that won't be made whole in her until Jesus comes and she sees him as he is, I get to carry those. I get to care for those. I get to help her improve in those. That becomes my number one job in ministry as a married person. The books on marriage uh, should be on our Amazon site and listed from the marriage series. I didn't mention the books on dating, so let me just take a second to circle back. Uh, There were two books that I really focused on. One was called God's Design for Christian Dating by Greg Laurie. Excellent book. I have no hesitation in recommending it. And then Joshua Harris's I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Now, books are definitely, I subscribe to the theory that books are like watermelons. You eat the good stuff, you spit out the seed, and you stop when you get to the rind. I'm not saying everything in these books I agree with. I want you to do everything. Keep your mind engaged. Think carefully through them. The final question, what does the Bible teach about divorce? To put it another way, is divorce okay? It's a question that comes up a lot because we have the highest divorce rate in the world as Americans. More than 50% of us will have gone through a divorce. Church numbers are almost identical. So divorce becomes something we really have to seek carefully prayerfully, lovingly, to be able to say, here's the truth, and and, and we're not acting again like this is the the ultimate sin, and we're pointing only this thing out to the exclusion of our own sins. We're we're doing this in a loving way to say we we all want the priority and the presence of God. So let's look at divorce like we'd look at any other thing and be honest about what's there. There are three biblical exceptions that I see for the dissolution of a marriage. The language in each is common. It's treated the same way. The first one is death. We read it in the Corinthians passage in Romans 7 2. It says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. If her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She, she no longer is married. And that word released is the word loosed, not bound to it. Now, being half Italian and off the boat, half Italian from my father's side, culturally, this is a unique challenge, right? Because they expect no matter what age your husband died at, this woman should wear black the rest of her life and, you know, long dresses and a veil and mourn just that person. The Bible doesn't say that. It says if your spouse has died, you're loose. That that binding of marriage no longer applies. The same language will come up in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15 about the abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. He'll say the same thing about the guy and say, because the thing is, your presence there can change that family. God might use that to convert that husband or wife, and he will use that to sanctify your children. You want to keep God's presence in this marriage that you're into now that's bound you two together, even if that person's not a believer. Common in the first century, when you're dealing with brand new converts, the gospel's being preached, the spirit moves, you're both sitting in the synagogue, suddenly one of the two says, praise God, Jesus is the Messiah. The other goes, I'm sorry, I was looking at the announcements. And you're still married when you walk out of the synagogue at that time, and they have to figure out what that looks like. And Paul's advice is marriage is a ministry, and it may be the ministry of salvation in your case. It's going to be difficult. You're unequally yoked. You're going to have problems. But you need to be like Jesus for that person. But if that person says, I want nothing to do with you. This is nutty now. You're, you're all about God. You're getting in the way of everything I believe in. I'm leaving you because of this faith that you have. Paul says that person isn't bound. They're not enslaved. Same word as the person whose spouse has died. Freed up. The Pharisees ask a frequently asked question of Jesus, and they say, what about marriage and divorce? And in Matthew 19, Jesus answers, and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus goes right back to creation, God's rule of it, the two being made one. And, and the Pharisees say, well, wait a minute. We have a biblical rule that says you can give a certificate of divorce. In, in a patriarchal society, it was only for men to give the certificate of divorce to women. And Jesus then sheds some light on it and says all of that stuff, only the men being able to do it, Moses saying you can do it, is all about your sinfulness, the hardness of your hearts, because you couldn't serve each other because you became so annoyed that you just wanted to throw it away and start again. You need the law when you're a sinful person. The Ten Commandments come after the fall, not in the garden. When our hearts are right with God, we don't need to be told, by the way, worship God and not idols. By the way, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. One pastor once said, if you love God, you can then do whatever you want. Paul would say, against love, there is no law. If you love your God, love your neighbor yourself, it's all working out properly. But in this case, Jesus says, if there is an exception, here's what it is. It's based on sexual immorality. They can divorce because of that. And the exception is both for the marriage being dissolved and for the remarriage. You're not committing adultery. If your spouse has has gotten involved in sexual immorality, they're having an affair, and they're non-repentant. They don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're freed up if that divorce goes through. Here's something, though, that we need to say very plainly. Just because there's sexual morality in a marriage does not mean it has to be over. There are many places in the Bible where God places himself in the position of a spouse who's had a people who's cheated on him and says, I'm going to be faithful. I will restore this. I've seen many marriages that are strong, maybe even stronger than before the break happened, that stayed through an incident of sexual morality and said, we we can still be committed to each other. The person wanted to repent, left what was going on, and the couple had to figure out, well, now we have no exception anymore. They're not unrepentant and staying in that constant state of sexual morality. And And they worked it out. Love God and do what you will is kind of the code for avoiding some of these things, but it's going to happen. There are exceptions. If Moses, the lawgiver, gave exceptions, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to make everything right in this situation. And then we come to the question, is there remarriage after divorce? Because the church has taught a lot of things on this, and I'll be very transparent with you. On no other topic, not even the end times, have I just changed more often in my early years as a Christian trying to figure out, what does it say? Then I landed on the place that I think is biblical, where if you're loosed, like when a spouse has died, you're free to be married. If you're loosed when that person who is an unbeliever has left you, you're free to be married. If you're not committing divorce or adultery and in, 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 in not committing adultery and remarriage after sexual morality has ruined a marriage, you're free to remarry. In those three exceptions, the marriage is loosed, and you're absolutely fully loosed. Best book on this is uh, Jay Adams' book on uh, divorce and remarriage. If there are exceptions that you feel you have, maybe the civil right of um, just not being able to have life get along, irreconcilable differences, the Bible doesn't speak to those as exceptions. If you just don't like the way the person is treated, the Bible doesn't speak to those as exceptions. There are a lot of people who need help with their marriage. I don't know why we're too proud to get it. The divorce rate is so high because we won't follow through on the ministries we're supposed to do and the help that we're going to need. I want to encourage you. If you're in a place where you're at all concerned about dating, marriage, and divorce, and remarriage in your life, reach out to somebody and talk this through. It may be a small group leader. It may be one of the pastors. Don't suffer in this area. This could be a long, long time impact. Let's honor God. Let's make his kingdom right by putting him first in this. Because the Lord weighs in, and it's not just with law. We don't want to do that. When the church just speaks law about divorce and remarriage, there's no love there. Without love, we're nothing. Malachi 2.16, he says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. He's pulled that flesh apart, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. What he'll say is, I hate divorce in the very next passage. There's a reason he hates it. It's, it's so painful for that couple. He loves us. The Heavenly Father loves us. 
He loves his people faithfully when we've stepped aside in unbelief, even when we were unbelieving in him and unaware of him, while we were at enmity with him, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. Even in the imbalance, he didn't dissolve the relationship when unequally yoked. He loved us. He loves us with an enduring love. The Psalms talk about it as hesed, a love that just continues and continues. He says to Joshua when you're leading the people into the land, know that I'm with you always. He says to the Christian church, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, even when we commit sexual immorality and you could divorce us, yeah, he'll stay with us to the end of the age. We have confession and forgiveness and, and we know what it is to be cleansed from those things. The, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna celebrate a communion with God. It's a place where we come to him and say, Lord, I'm called your bride, the church. It's the mystery of that being made one, of those two things, the sinner and the holy one being brought together. And I recognize there are places that seem so unequally yoked in the way that I pull away from you. But you're faithful. You're faithful to give your obedient son as a sacrifice for my sin. And Lord, I recognize my sin, but I recognize you'll still be there. You you won't put me away. And so I want to encourage everyone to come up today and if you're at a place in your obedience and faith where you recognize I'm a sinner, Jesus came to die to save sinners. I can be fully saved, fully bonded to God forever. He won't leave me if I place that faith in him. Come up and receive. Take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice and receive not just the physical but the spiritual commitment that God has offered to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, I just sense a heaviness over this topic. There's, there's a lot of change of direction. There's a lot of hurt and confusion. Would you do a work of clarification and healing in this room? Where there's confusion, God, we know that you're not the author of confusion. We pray that you would speak directly to people and show us exactly where we're, where we're deceiving ourselves or been lied to and can follow a right path. God, where there's hurt and brokenness, we pray for healing. We know you're fully capable of raising the dead, so we know that you can raise up our hearts to a place of being whole again. We're not helpless and cast aside. Would you please do that in all the relationships in this church so that it would reflect you more fully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.